Hey, I'm Justin Anderson, lead pastor at Icon Church. Thanks for joining us for our series through Romans that we're calling Straight No Chaser. It is a look at the first seven chapters of the book of Romans. If you want more information, go to iconchurch.org. Hey guys, it's good to be with you today. Uh, hey, listen, we've got a lot to cover this morning, but also uh, we have some really wonderful things that we're going to look at. And so I just want to take some time and slow down a little bit and pray that God would help us as we hear what he has to say today. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but that you have given us your word and you have shown us the truth of who you are, the truth of uh, how this world has gone wrong and the truth of your son, Jesus Christ, who brings grace to uh, reign and to change everything. And so I thank you that grace changes everything. And I pray that today my friends would hear that and that you would not let it pass us by as just something that we already know, something that's obvious about the gospel. I pray that the gospel would rest and impact our hearts afresh today, God, and that you would unite my weak words with your power and that you would help me and you would help my friends as we listen today to what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are finishing up our series on Romans today, and if there's one thing that we've seen all throughout Romans 1 through 5 is that Paul is again and again and again giving hard truths with rock-solid hope. That Paul is going to, that's kind of the essence of our series title, Straight No Chaser, that he's going to give it to us the way that it is, but also he's been following it with this very real and rock-solid hope in the midst of some of those hard, honest answers. And so that's what we're going to do today. But just to kind of recap where we've been, our, our Roman series. And in chapter 1, verse 16, there's kind of this foundational verse of, uh, in some ways, we've kind of built off of since then. And it says that uh, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. And since then, we've been seeing that power at work. In chapters 1 through 2, the, the power of the gospel to level the playing field as we are all laid low as equally guilty sinners. Chapter 3, the gospel is powerful enough to save because Christ Jesus went to the cross to absorb our sin and satisfy the righteousness of God. Chapter 4, the gospel is powerful to save anyone and everyone because it is only accessed by faith and not some special work that only a few people are actually going to be able to do. And then last week, Justin looked at the beginning of Romans 5 and saw that the gospel is so wonderful that it doesn't just give us a get-out-of-hell-free card with justification by faith, but it actually brings these wonderful things that we need in order to live uh, with a sense of joy and with a sense of hope in a world that is in many ways marked by suffering. And today, for this second half of chapter 5, Paul is going to continue this, this vibe of giving a very hard, honest answer and then following it up with a rock-solid hope of how the gospel is powerful to address that honest answer. So we're going to look at Romans 5, 12 through 21. Romans 5, 12 through 21. Let me start reading uh, 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So Paul starts out here in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world, 
He starts this section by describing a foreign agent at work, that sin came into the world, meaning that there was a time in which sin was not only unnatural, but actually non-existent. That sin is not supposed to be here. And this is already a little bit jarring for us because when we think about this world, because of the way that we've experienced it, because of the way that we live in it, we know nothing less or nothing more than a world that has sin. But right from the, right from the get-go, we've got to just understand that small little piece in order to really get what he's going to say in the rest of the passage, that sin is not supposed to be here. That sin is a foreign agent, and this foreign agent has brought something with it. In its invasion, it has brought something to the world. And what is that? Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. That sin invades the earth, invades this world in which we inhabit, and actually brings with it the destructive forces and reality of death. That sin and death are inseparably linked. Sin brings death. Now, why is sin a conduit through which death entered the world? Listen to how uh, the theologian and pastor John Webster puts this. Sin brings death because sin destroys that dependence on God which alone gives life. We are creatures. We have our lives in the hand of God. To live is to live in relation to God, to live in communion or fellowship with the one who is our beginning and our end. Life isn't our possession, something we own. We're alive as we receive life from God as the gift of His grace and mercy. God, the psalmist tells us, holds our soul in life. But sin is the refusal to be held. It rests free of the embrace of God. Yet, free from God, we're cut off from the life-giving communion with God, and so we put ourselves in the realm of death. We take ourselves out of God's hands and place ourselves firmly in the, in the hands of a ruthless an entirely successful killer. Sin and death are inseparably linked. And in some way, I don't think this is something that we really want to accept. Because we, we certainly have a problem with death. We know that. We feel emotionally. There's an aversion there, obviously, to death. But do we really get that sin and death are inseparably linked? We often want to know why God would allow a world without death, but we never ask the question of why we would allow a world with sin. We want to know why God would allow that, but we never turn and see what the actual cause of that is. That we, we rightly feel a disdain for death, but in our heart and hearts never stop to actually examine what the problem is. That our world and us in many ways would be completely happy with a world without death, but the idea of a world without sin is, well, that might be an added bonus, but it's not quite as much of an emotional, visceral reaction as the idea of a world without death. And this is a problem. If we think in our head, man, a world without death is what we all want, but don't stop to also consider what a world without sin would look like, there's a problem. 
Listen, we, we as image bearers of the living God, and especially us as Christians who have been given new life, we should disdain death. Absolutely. And honestly, Christians have a really terrible habit of celebrating death, that we call it our friend. And I get that it's the gate through which we have to go in order to be with God in His presence. But Scripture in 1 Corinthians also calls death the last enemy to be defeated. And so we should not be calling a friend what God calls an enemy. We should hate death, but we should also have just as much of an emotional and visceral reaction towards sin as we do towards death because they are inseparably linked. You cannot separate the two. Listen, let, let me make this real plain. And I, I don't say this with uh, in a flippant way, but with all the sobriety in the world. Explosions in Beirut. 873,000 people worldwide dead from a pandemic that we did not see coming. Double hurricanes in the Gulf Coast. Do you want to know why that's happening? Do you want to know why that happens in this world? Not the scientific uh, how, but the existential why. Because Joshua Michael Searcy is a sinner. Does that, sound, does that sound weird to you? Does that sound like going too far? Does that sound like hyperbole? It's the truth. The reason why, why death exists in this world is because of my personal sin and your personal sin. I am the culprit. You are the culprit. That's what, that's what Paul says here in, the begin, in Romans 12 when he says that uh, so uh, sin came into the world, it brought death with it, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Listen, we are the culprit. That we, along with Adam, all sinned. And, and how that works itself out about, uh, about how our guilt comes into the guilt of Adam, whether it's because he's our, our federal head or because we're all descended from him, we can leave that for now at least to the ivory tower. But one thing we have to know right now and really get in order to feel the hope that Paul is going to bring here is that I, you, we, we are the problem. We are participants in sin's tyrannical reign of death. That we are the culprits. Make it personal. I am the reason. My sin is that serious. And if that's serious, just a side note, then we should probably take it very seriously. If sin really does bring death, then we should take it as serious as possible. So, so I have a friend who had another friend, and uh, his friend I would never be friends with because of what I'm about to describe. But uh, So this friend uh, had a friend who decided that it would be a good idea to get a, uh, a, a boa constrictor as a pet. Um, so already something's wrong with that picture. Uh, and so this person had the boa constrictor and got it like as a little baby, you know, and um, so he was feeding it, he was letting it grow and all that. And it came to a point where he was so close with this snake that he would actually let it uh, sleep in its bed. It's a true story. I'm not making it up. This is a true story. And 
uh, over time, uh, you know, normally the snake would kind of curl up at the end of the bed while this guy slept. Uh, and then out of nowhere, he, he started to notice that the snake was uh, beginning to no longer curl at the end of the bed, but would actually come and uh, lay beside him and kind of stretch out right beside him as, as they slept. And he thought that was weird. And then along with that, like the snake stopped eating its normal meal of mouse or whatever he fed it. I'm not sure, but uh, it stopped eating. And so he thought, you know, something's wrong. I should take this uh, pet snake to the vet. Uh, and so he did. And the vet, after hearing what this guy described, said, uh, you need to go home right now and you need to get rid of that snake immediately. Because what it's doing is it's slowly starving itself and then it's laying beside you because it's measuring how much longer it needs to get in order to consume you. That this pet snake that he thought was safe was actually waiting to see how long it had to get in order to destroy him, in order to kill him. And if that's not an illustration of what sin is, I don't know what is. That sin is serious. And listen, some of us in this pandemic have been forced into a corner where a lot of, a lot of things have come out of our heart, have come out of our mind, come into our life that in some ways we might have gotten comfortable with because, you know, this pandemic might go on for a while and so I guess I better get used to this. Listen, take sin seriously because it is, you give it any room, it will continue to measure you and to wait to see how long it needs to get in order to kill you. So we should take sin seriously. We are the culprits. Straight, no chaser. Death exists. A world of chaos and destruction exists because we have been willing participants in sin's tyrannical reign of death. This cosmic veil, as Isaiah 25 puts it, that reigns over humanity. It's the result of our sin. That's the honest answer. Verse 15. But, what a, what a word in this context, but the free gift is not like the trespass. After painting a realistic and honest portrayal of what is wrong with the world and how we got into this mess, Paul shifts into hope. And he shifts by beginning to set up almost this competition between all the damages of sin and the benefits of Jesus. Paul, but the free gift is not like the trespass. Listen to what he says. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Paul's not just setting up a comparison here. The more that I read this and the more that I studied this text, the more it feels like Paul is about to break out into worship. He's not making an observation in the rest of this text about the differences between sin and the grace of Jesus. He's talking about abundance. Paul is going to say that with the grace of Jesus Christ, there is an utter reversal of Adam's sin and our sin. An utter reversal. It's not a game where the two parties are the same. Grace has abounded. Look at that word in verse 15. Grace has abounded. So we got a clue that for the rest of this text, Paul is going to be speaking about grace in such a way that we should have the category of 
abundance. The rest of this passage is going to show this and it's going to show that the grace of God absolutely undoes and reverses the effects of sin. Look at verse 16 now. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Skip down to verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The first way in which the grace of Jesus is able to reverse the effects of sin is in the results that it produces. Now, it's not really that hard to imagine that grace would bring about a different result than sin. But Paul is not simply, again, trying to make an observation that grace brought you something different than sin did. Remember, we're working off of the category of abundance in in verse 15. So that means that the results that Paul is talking about here is him saying that grace is more able to raise up than sin is to condemn. Grace is more able to raise up in its results, more able than sin is to condemn. And that's true for two reasons that Paul shows in this text. First, grace is able to abound and result in justification because of how it was won for us. That's what verse 18 is talking about, right? That grace has come about because there has come into the world a man who would perform such an act of righteousness such an act of obedience that it would be, con- be able to be conferred to other people other than himself. That this is what theologians call imputation. That Jesus' obedience has not only satisfied the righteousness of God, but now made possible for us to have righteousness completely given to us, outside of us. In other words, grace is able to abound and bring justification because it's no longer dependent on your performance, but on the faith, on faith in Jesus' work. We've already covered this in Romans 5, but this is rock-solid hope. That in the face of sin, we have hope because of the entrance into righteousness. It's no longer dependent on the performance of weak and selfish sinners like us, but on the obedient Son, Jesus Christ. The obedience of Jesus in our place, that is the gracious uh, inner mechanisms of justification. But that gets us in the door, right? Jesus' obedience justifies us and gets us into the family of God, but what is going to keep us there? What ensures that grace won't run out after we've been justified? The reason we know that grace will not run out is because grace is resilient. In verses 18 through 19, he gave the mechanisms of grace, but verse 16 is going to give the mathematics of grace. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. The sin of Adam in which we participate was one trespass. Just one. 
Now, it was so serious and so heinous and so diabolical that it brought condemnation to the whole human race, yet Jesus still came. Now, from that time that Adam sinned to the time that Jesus came, God was telling a story. He was, he was writing history in such a way that people might know who He is. And one of, the, one of the ways in which He was revealing Himself is a God of grace, of resilient grace. The amount of time it took for Jesus to come and to offer up Himself in an act of righteousness and obedience that would save us, that time is filled with destruction and dysfunction. I mean, read the Old Testament. Some of the quote-unquote worst sins that plague humanity are written into the story of the Old Testament. And yet Jesus still came. Read the Old Testament or read other stories of history of what that time looked like and you'll see that it is a wonder that there even is a New Testament. (laughs) From the very outset of the New Testament, grace is shown to be winning because after thousands of years of murder and strife and sexual immorality and idolatry, Jesus still came. The load of sin in the Old Testament was not heavy enough, was not too much that Jesus would, would not come and save, performing a work of grace on the behalf of us sinners. And you, you know what that means for you? That means... That truth, listen to this today, receive this today, that the load of sin, the weight of guilt, the weight of having dishonored God and shamed yourself, that weight, that load is not enough to keep Jesus from extending His hand of grace to you today, right now, not to some future version of you. No matter the sin and no matter its consistency, the grace of Jesus stands ready to save you unfazed. Jesus' grace is resilient. The density of grace is greater than the density of your guilt. And that's what verse 20 is talking about, right? That the law of God came in to increase the trespass because it showed exactly what was right and what was wrong. That's why the law came in. No longer was there any room to, to plead ignorance. Instead, humanity stood with this clear indictment of how they had gone wrong. The law took it and put a weight on their back that got worse and worse and worse. And yet, even with that, when the nature of sin got worse because it became as clear and as clear as could be that we are not just broken people who can't seem to get their things together, but that we are high-handed rebels in disobedience to God. It made the nature of sin worse, and yet grace still abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. With the law, you know with clear measurables just how much you've screwed it up, and it's bad, right? You get to see how bad you are at it when you see what the law is. It's kind of like when I, you know, when I was, I'm, I'm still in my 20s, but in my early 20s, uh, I really got into longboarding and just going down hills and doing crazy, stupid stuff. And uh, me and a friend back in Texas used to do this all the time. And I had a really long longboard. It was 52 inches long. I loved it, and it was super fast. So I got into it, and 
I thought like, you know, I did some skating when I was younger and so I can probably handle this. And so we'd go down some hills in Texas and, um, you know, every now and then, it would, I mean, we'd get up pretty fast and I felt more and more confident, but not until something got placed in front of me that was uh, too much for me to handle did I realize just how uh, not ready for longboarding I was. And so we, we went down this road called Hilltop Road in Argyle, Texas. Uh, it's an old road, which means that there's some waves in the road. And because I have such had such a long long board, 52 inches long, the the faster you go, the more the board kind of flexes like that. Uh, a professional would know this, but not an amateur like me who overestimated his skill. Uh, and so I, I we we go to Hilltop Road on a Saturday, and I was like, man, I'll go first. Uh, this looks awesome. We've done things like this before, but this looks even more intense, but let's just do it. So I get going and I go down the hill and probably about 15 seconds into it, I realize this is above my pay grade. <laughs> this, is, this is not gonna be, this is not gonna end well for me. So I start going really fast. We, I, like we measured it and I got clocked at like 27 miles an hour on this thing. And because I'm going so fast, and the waves in the road are making my, my board flex more and more, I start to get what's called the speed wobbles. And a professional would probably know what to do in this situation. Um, but me, being the amateur that I was, and again, overestimating my skill, did not know what to do. So in my head, in a moment of panic, I just think, the only thing I can do right now, this, I, it's too far gone for me to stabilize this. And so I, I've just got to jump off. And so <laughs> I jump off the board. I take probably two steps and then just straight onto the concrete. By God's grace, I didn't hit my head. I wasn't wearing a helmet. Uh, but what did happen is I got second degree road rash burns up my side and tore my abdomen wall. Had to go to the ER and get that taken care of. And the law is kind of like Hilltop Road. It shows you just how terrible you really are. It raises the stakes and shows you that you're not ready. It shows you, the world, and God, not just that you're broken and can't seem to get together, like I said, but that our sin is high-handed rebellion against God, and yet grace still came. Listen, God knows everything right, which means He's probably pretty good at math. And if God knows everything and is good at math, He knows the number of your sins. He knows the ones that roar back into your life and that seem unbeatable. And yet He remains committed, benevolent, ready to receive you with grace. God's grace for you is always in the context of prior knowledge of how many times you've screwed it up. And yet, it still comes for you. Still ready for you. And God's grace for you is always aware of how you're going to screw it up. Which means that you can count that grace will still be there on that day. The grace of God is more resilient than the condemnation of sin. God's grace has more staying power than even those pesky, besetting sins that seem like they rule you, that just whip you. God's grace is more resilient, has more staying power than those. Just as sin was able to bring condemnation, and you know that feeling, you know that state well, much more has the grace of God abounded to bring you justification. Abounded. Where sin increases, 
grace abounds all the more. This is the omnipotent miracle of grace. And so grace was won by the obedience of Jesus. And that gracious obedience in our place came after millennia of untold number of sins. That means grace is resilient, resilient enough to bring us a different result in justification and to make sure that we are kept there. Grace abounds for our justification. Next, how does grace reverse the effects of sin? How does it bring in the benefits of Jesus and beats out the effects of sin? Next, through not just its resiliency, but grace brings a better reign. Look at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, finish this verse, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace is our hope of reversal in this world of death because it does bring and will bring a better reign of life to every arena and every category that sin has touched and destroyed with death. I, I have a, a daughter who's going to be three at the end of this year. And, um, you know, screen time, all that stuff, I know I should really watch it with her. Uh, and we do, we try, but, you know, pandemic. Um, uh, quarantine. Uh, so we've been we've watched some movies this year. Let's say it that way. Um, and one of the movies that she's been really getting into finally is The Lion King, which just makes my heart happy because that came out when I was four years old, almost her age. And uh, I've loved that movie ever since. And there's this moment in The Lion King where Mufasa takes Simba out and Simba's kind of asking like, is this all ours? Is this land all ours? Uh, and Mufasa replies by saying that everything the light touches is ours. And Simba, the kid that he is, notices a, a corner of darkness, a corner of shadows. And he's like, what about that over there? And Mufasa says, basically, uh, no, we don't go there. The light doesn't reach there. That's not like grace. Grace is not like that. The grace of Jesus has no corner in which it doesn't go. Paul says here that everything sin has brought death to, grace will replace it with life. There is no corner, no matter how dark it looks right now, in which grace will not come in and change categorically into life. There's no corner of your life or this world where Jesus says, no, my grace doesn't really go there. His grace will reign in life. And who does it say that is reigning in life? Us, right? That's what it says in, uh, in, the, in the end of verse 17. Uh, Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The very ones who were slaves to sin. 
The very ones who were beaten down with no hope in the world and destined to die forever, we have been given grace in Jesus Christ, and through that grace, we will reign in life. Grace doesn't just pick you up and dust you off, but by the grace of Jesus Christ, you're given a crown to rule. To rule over that which once ruled over you. To beat back that which once uh, was hell-bent on destroying you. Sin cannot and will not win in your life because you are no longer its slave, but by grace you are a co-regent with Jesus Christ in His kingly campaign to undo every corner of death that has creeped into your life and into this world. As Romans 6 says later, sin will have no dominion over you because you are not under law, but under grace. Grace changes things. It brings us weak sinners into the category of reigning in life. That's its power. That's its reign. There's not one area of darkness in which the light of grace cannot penetrate and confront with life. Grace will win. Paul by the assurance and ministry of the Holy Spirit, knows with unflinching hope that death will not have the final word, but that with the grace of Jesus Christ, life will win, will bring us into a reign of life in every way that sin has upended the world and tossed it into a spiral of death and disease and destruction. In that same way, Grace will come in like a glorious interruption at the second coming of Jesus Christ and bring not just a new era, but a new existence of untouchable, untaintable, never-ending life. That right now, grace, the, the, the currents of grace, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, are, are running over your life, smoothing out those stones that are uh, that are rocky and edgy and sharp, slowly smoothing those things over in time. But there is coming a day where that grace will no longer just be a small current that uh, smooths over time, but will be a torrential downpour that will wipe every trace and remembrance of death and sin away from the face of the earth. Grace will win. Jesus will win. And we will reign with Him. And so grace, grace brings about the reversal and will bring about the reversal of every effect of sin. That the, the benefits of Jesus and what He's done, what He's won for us, and what He's given to us, as the text says, as a free gift. It will reverse and undo everything the sin has destroyed. To quote C.S. Lewis and get brownie points with Justin, that he said that everything sad will become untrue. Will become completely untrue. There will be no sadness no despair, no death, those things by the power of God's grace in Jesus Christ will be wiped away. There's coming a day for that. But what, what does all this mean for you right now? A few things. 
Because it is resilient, let grace catch you. Let grace catch you. Give, give up on yourself and let grace win. Let grace catch you. You know, I, so like I said, I have, I have a almost three-year-old daughter. One of the things that she loves is me taking her right before bedtime and just like throwing her up as, as, uh, as strong as I can. But the thing is, is that every time, <laughs> she's, she's let me throw her a couple times, but almost every time when I go like this to throw her up in the air, I'll notice that her little hand is still holding on to one of my thumbs. That in her mind, she has some reason to still be holding on to what she thinks will catch her if daddy doesn't catch her. And I, sometimes I, I really just wish that she would let go. That she would enjoy this thing a whole lot more if she let go and let daddy throw her. Trusted that daddy was going to catch her on the way back down. And some of you today need to hear that God the Father his grace is just like that for you. And he's saying to you today, you would enjoy this whole thing a lot more if you just let me catch you. If you just gave up on the voices of shame in your head. The voices that say that, that I don't want you near me. That my love's run out for you. If you would give up on those and let grace catch you, you would enjoy this thing a whole lot more. And for some of you, you need to take that first leap into grace. This text makes clear in verse 17 that this reign of life, this grace that changes everything in its resilience and in its reign is available for those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift. Some of you need to receive it for the first time today by faith and let grace catch you. Second, because it will bring a better reign, let grace comfort you. Listen, there are, uh, there are friends and church family that have experienced loss in this season. There are so many in our city who are grieving right now. Who, for who the sting of death is not theoretical. It is visceral. It is known. And if grace will one day reign in life, that means that it's true when Paul says that we do not, that we grieve, that we feel the pain absolutely. The, the Bible never truncates emotion for you, to, for you to not be able to feel what is actually painful. But it does say that we grieve as those who have hope, that we do not grieve as those who do not have hope, but we actually have this hope that there is coming a day where grace will win, will win and every stain of death, every way in which it has stung our hearts, the way it has in its unnatural invasion interrupted our life, grace will restore. Imagine that today. And that means that for those of us who are 
beat by anxiety, of which I am a part. If grace will reign, I should have comfort in my fear, comfort in my anxiety. Because you you can boil any anxiety far enough down to the primal fear of death. That everything can be traced back to that. That in this world of chaos, death is the, the CEO. It's running every fear. It's dictating every fear. And if death itself is going to be undone, and grace in life will take its spoils and will now, uh, in Jesus Christ, create a new world where death will be unthinkable, that means that we can have comfort. If grace will reign in life, if grace is really going to undo this world of death, then we have every reason, every reason to lay our fear at the feet of Jesus. Finally, and this might, this last one might feel a little out of left field, but I have felt it in my spirit this week that this needs to be applied to us from Romans 5. Not only is grace resilient so we should let it catch us, not only is grace going to bring a better rain so we should let it comfort us, but looking back at the top of this text, because this city, because Seattle is trapped in death, stay. Stay and be an agent of life. I think there's a lot of people right now who are wondering and asking, why do I live in Seattle? I've only been here for two months and I absolutely love it. I am not about people disparaging their mission field. I love Seattle. I feel at home here already. I've gotten to see the mountains. I've gotten to have good food. I've gotten to have friends come visit and show them all around and be happy about it. But none of that takes away from the fact that Seattle is a difficult city. It's a difficult city where a lot is going on right now, but that's exactly why we as Christians need to stay. We need to stay where it's hard. We need to let go of worldly thinking and be a resilient disciple who stays where the light of life and the grace of Jesus is most needed. Listen, these difficult times where you might be asking the question, Why do I live in Seattle? Instead of opening up Indeed.com and looking at a new job in a new place, open up your Bible, get on your knees and ask God, how do you want to use me as an agent of life in this city that is stuck in a spiral of death in many different ways, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual? How do you want to use me here? God, what is your purpose for me here in Seattle? Because grace will reign. We have the backing of the Holy Spirit of God and His Word that says grace will reign out, that Jesus will not be vanquished, that even right now He sits on His throne and is ready to extend grace and mercy to those who are far from Him and without hope. And because of that, we want to stay here. We want to stay where it's difficult. We want to stay where it's a little bit exhausting. Because we know what we've been given in Jesus Christ. The life, the grace, 
the peace. This city desperately needs it. And in many ways, has no idea about it. So because of that, stay. This city is trapped in death. Stay and be an agent of life. Grace is resilient. Let it catch you today. Grace will reign, so let it comfort you today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you have been kind and generous and benevolent in your grace. And you continue to be to this day. God, I pray that whatever sin or shame is biting on the conscience of my friends here at Icon, pray that you'd remove it by your grace. That your grace would be a balm to them where they feel wounded by their own sin. Wounded by guilt. Wounded by shame. Weighed down. Let them know today that the load of that guilt in no way phases your grace, God. Your grace changes everything. Let that be true and seen in our lives and in our life together as Icon Church. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment. Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.